This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Holy Heretics, the post-evangelical podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, Christian nationalism, sexuality, gender, spiritual abuse, faith deconstruction, and how to recover from evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, activists, and writers in our quest to find a freer faith. Listen wherever you get your podcast or check us out at sophiasociety.org slash podcast. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat, by the way. I'm with my brother, John, up in the uh, up, upper left-hand corner of the Hollywood Squares. <laughs> I always say that also as though there's more than one. Right. I've actually heard a, a funny uh, comedy sketch recently about a guy who was, oh, he was kicked off the Hollywood Squares. Oh, it was um, Bobcat Goldthwait. That sounds about right. He was on the Hollywood Squares and he got fired because nobody would pick him, even <laughs> if it was to win. <laughs> he's like, he's like I'm, I'm not going to do his voice because it's Bobcat Goldthwait. He's like, I'm sitting center square and the guy needs an X to win and he won't pick me. And I'm like, it's freaking tic-tac-toe. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I'm sorry, sir. We're just gonna... <laughs> so how do you get, so you get fired off the Hollywood squares and apparently, uh, other people like, uh, Paul Lynn get to keep their jobs. Uh, so I don't know. Whatever, what did Paul Lynn actually do? I, uh, other than <laughs> being, um, I think he was like the uncle on Bewitched. Is that, was that his one and only? Cause ever, after that, he was, he was just like this perennial game show guest. Yeah, I, that's that, honestly, you know, that's what I, you know, being a child of the seventies, that's what I remember him Except for. Except for being that, like a super sort of like, like flamboyant character and funny. Right. I always was like, why is this guy famous? Like, what the hell has he been in? <laughs> and none of this has anything to do with the podcast. But this is just how my brain works when the synapses begin to fire, you know, at random moments. I don't think you've introduced me. Oh, uh, John, say, say, uh, say, uh, Barney Miller rules, John. Barney Miller rules, John. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. We'll talk about Barney Miller later. Or or we won't. I don't know. We may not. Sometimes I get derailed and I never come back to the spot That's where totally I was. Fun. But, totally fine. Um, I assume you click on the link so you know that this is the podcast called This Is Not Church. But we do like to inform you that if it was church, we would have all left by now. And you'd be justified in doing so. But as always, John and I are, we're just fortunate. You know, do you ever think about this for a second, John? Sometimes I just sit around and go, man, we are just so fortunate with the caliber of people who agree to come on this show. Now, mind you, most of them never want to come back. I mean, they're like, <laughs> my publisher or somebody talked me to this once. Um, okay. But I'm always super impressed with the, not just the quality, but the variety, right? I and mean, it's not as though we're just dipping in, into one little stream of faith or not faith or whatever. We get all it's like this really disparate sort of group of people. And this is no, today's guest is no, is no exception to that. So we get to dive into some really interesting stuff with our, our guests. Let me, let me introduce her real quick. Uh, LNT Armour is E. Rhodes, um, and Leona B. Carpenter, chair and professor of feminist theology at Vanderbilt. First of all, what are we doing hobnobbing with the hoi polloi? Hanging out with people <laughs> who teach at Vanderbilt? I mean, we're barely high school educated and we're hanging out with like, like people with serious academic chops. I'm, I'm, I'm a more than a little bit, um, intimidated, but that's okay. I'll get over it. <laughs> she also directs the Carpenter Program in Religion, Gender, and Sexuality. Her books include Signs and Wonders, Theology After Modernity, Columbia 2016, and Seeing and Believing, which is her most recent book, I believe, uh, Religion, Digital, Visual, Culture, and Social Justice, also by Columbia and that's in 2023. So look at that. Very short bio, but I bet there's a whole lot of stuff to say. So without any further ado, welcome to the program. Ellen, how are you? Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks. And already having so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, if nothing else, John and I can uh, we can we can enter we can entertain slightly. Let me let me ask you a uh, an off the cuff question before we get into your books and everything else. But I'm curious if you have anything any commentary about this this like sort of sneak. I call it a sneaky phenomenon of the Barbie movie. I'm very curious, especially somebody who who has cut their academic chops on on these issues. Have you had a chance to see it or if you have formed any opinion about it? I have not had a chance to see it, but I'm dying to. In fact, we had, we, you know, Barbenheimer. So we saw um, Oppenheimer this weekend, right? Past weekend. And um, we're not really thrilled with that one. But we're planning to go next weekend to see Barbie with the same 
people we went to see Oppenheimer with. So we'll finish our Barbenheimer in two weekends rather than back to back. But I'm very, very, very curious about it. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 first of all, I keep giving, I keep wanting to be grateful. So I, I will be. I'm grateful to the reactionaries who lost their collective minds. Um, cause this, this movie would have slipped past me. Like it's, it's nowhere near something I was interested in. And I think I remember seeing a trailer going, okay, that looks it. Oh, whatever. But they lost their minds. And now I have to go see what all the hubbub is about. And I'm, I'm actually really glad they did because it's actually a pretty darn good movie. Yeah. Good. Good. And the themes that are addressed are, I think it's, it's interesting when you can lampoon something and people can't figure out the humor. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like they are exaggerating to, you know, taking things to extremes. And obviously it's, it, I, I feel like it's just a lampoon of patriarchy in general, but I just don't think a lot of people, you know, who are anti whatever the message is here, they, they don't even know what the message is that they're against. They just don't like it because it, it, it hits them right in their patriarchal hearts and they go, no. But anyway, I just was curious if that was sort of, it feels like it's a, like a bit of a groundswell of a little cultural phenomenon this summer. Like it's, it's going to make some way. Yeah. And the fact that it's made so much money is just kind of also really amazing. So yeah, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait. Yeah, I, I was in the I was in the same situation as Nat. It's like uh, I had I, I saw the trailer. I had really no interest in seeing it. It didn't really seem to fit into my wheelhouse of the type of movies I want to watch until I saw Ben Shapiro's review of it, and then I'm like, <laughs> now I have to see it. If he hates it as bad <laughs> as much as he hated it, and I'm not going to give it away. People need to go and check out his visual review of the movie. If he hates it that much, I, I need to see it mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure I'm going to mm-hmm. be more on, it's going to be more in my wheelhouse than I thought. So it's, yeah. And like Nat said, it's like the patriarchy has lost their ever-loving, ever-loving mind over this movie. And so I'm like, okay, this is something that I need to take the time and watch. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's it. Somebody, one of my Facebook friends today commented, I put a little review online and I, I tried not to give too many spoilers, but I gave a quick, you know, my thoughts on it. And one of my one of my Facebook friends coined, I don't think he coined it, but he called Ben Shapiro and one of the guy, he called them bro flakes. And I'm like, you know what? That might just be the perfect description. Well, what a bunch of little bro flakes, you know, their little, they're little tiny little shriveled man hearts are, uh, you know, they're just frightened of anyone who challenges their authority. But anyway, um, we'll, uh, we'll, John and I have actually planned to do a podcast episode. We may talk about that and, uh, I was also really, really, have you seen this, John? This, I didn't mean to turn this into current events, but here we are. Um, that a, a Christian song written by a drag queen. Yes. Has yep. hit number one song on the Christian charts and she calls herself Flamey Grant and people are losing their minds. I've heard the song. It's really good. Derek Webb, who was the former frontman for Caven's Call is, is featured on, on the, on the song. And it just sort of snuck up. Like everyone was like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden this song is, who is this Flamey Grant person? And then they found out he's a drag queen and they lost it. <laughs> it was, it was, it was actually pretty perfect. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I've got to look that up. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see the fallout from that. You know, there will be. I, I, I don't know anything more about Flamey Grant except that apparently whatever church he goes to is super affirming and awesome. And so at one point, he's actually preached a sermon in drag at that church. And I don't know anything else about his identity other than that's just, you know, that's his persona or her persona. So I don't know how he identifies any yeah. other way. But I was pleased as punch, as you say, to see something like that kind of sneak into the into Christendom and have people go, oh, it's a beautiful song. What a really good messaging. And then lose their minds over the messenger. <laughs> so anyway, I think some of that sort of dovetails nicely with where you dabble and where you work with social, with, with, with media and, 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 and those kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. I, I know our, I know the bio was kind of short and didn't leave, didn't give too many details. So if you don't mind maybe filling in some blanks, it'd be great. Well, I've, I've been interested in issues around social justice for a very long time, at least since graduate school and probably really before. I did my graduate work here at Vanderbilt, um, actually back in the eighties. And, you know, it's interesting to see where we are now compared to where we were then. And, you know, feminism had kind of made its impact. And I was really fortunate to get to study with uh, some very important uh, feminist scholars when I was here. And it turned out that they were also lesbian. 
as was I. But that process of coming out was a complicated one, but they navigated it actually pretty well and Vanderbilt responded well and it was all good. But there were still issues. I mean, the Vanderbilt Divinity School has been kind of a, a progressive divinity school, kind of outlier in the South for a long time, going back to the so-called James Lawson affair back during the civil rights movement, when Jim Lawson, who is now ordained and has a D-men and all that, anyway, he was uh, uh, enrolled as a student at Vanderbilt and and um, was very instrumental in organizing um, the sit-ins in the sit-in movement in Nashville. And that got some opponents of that all worked up, speaking of Barbie movies. And uh, he was eventually kicked out of Vanderbilt University, not by the Divinity School, but by higher-ups. And the um, Divinity School faculty, a number of them actually resigned in mass in protest of that. He was eventually allowed to come back, but by then he'd already transferred to another school and and uh, where he graduated and all things like that. So, you know, it, I'm, I live out that, you know, that history of the complexities of the challenges of social justice um, is one that I think is very much a part of my life, um, certainly my adult life. And so, um, and the same thing with media in some ways, um, although that scholarly interest has become a more recent one. That's a much more recent one for me, particularly around photography. I became, I don't know, sometimes I say obsessed with photography and its role in our world. As I was working on my previous book, the seeing, I mean, not seeing is believing, but signs and wonders that you mentioned a bit ago. And I started working on that book in 2003. And you may remember there were some pretty big events that happened between 2003 and 2005 in which visual media really featured prominently. And I write about some of them. The first one that I wrote about, which kind of sent me down this rabbit hole of photography, are the Abu Ghraib torture archive. You know, the photographs from Abu Ghraib, you remember those? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then another was um, the video of Terry Schiavo, who you may remember, yeah, there was a big fight between her, her husband and her, her family of origin about whether or not to let her die. And, and the two other sets of photographs I talk about are um, one were the photographs of Gene Robinson, who became the first openly gay Episcopal bishop in Anglican Communion around that same time. And who would have ever guessed that you'd see photographs of a consecration of a bishop above the fold, as they say, right, in the New York Times? And yet it was a major media event. And then finally, Hurricane Katrina and the disaster that that represented, um, which again, most of us, you know, saw it on media, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of got me really interested in photography. But think about the difference between now and 2003 and 2005. Now we have little tiny cameras we carry around in our pockets all the time, right? And most of us, and we, you know, we take, we take pictures with those cameras all the time. We never, I mean, even back in the Instamatic days, right? The Polaroid days. Did you guys carry those around with you everywhere you went? No. Who could afford the film? I mean. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the developing and all that stuff. And so now here we are where a lot of the challenges around social justice issues that we're confronting now are really animated by social media. Now, in some ways you could say that's not, that's not new, right? But, and by visual media as they appear on social media. So think about all of the controversies around um, around the um, around police killings of black people, you know, as an example, the killing of George Floyd, et cetera, et cetera, and how critical the videos taken by somebody, just a lay person with a cell phone who happens to be there, are to those those events. So that's what's got me kind of really interested is, you know, there's always been a connection between visual media and other forms of media. But now this whole media landscape that we're a part of is really very, very different. You know, we talk about social media as our new public square because it's where we all interact with each other so much of the time, right? And where we 
Cher, you know, whatever. Ben Shapiro shares his views about Barbie and it, you know, the Barbie movie and it just goes viral and crazy, right? So um, just as one example of that. And at least on my Facebook page, I everything has a visual image attached to it. Everything. There's even a new word for our relationship to media these days. We are not consumers or producers. We are prosumers. We produce the media we see and we consume the media we see, right? So it is in some ways a very democratic environment in many ways because it's kind of like, well, why not post? Let's just put it up there. And you get the good and the bad with that kind of an environment. But we also always have to remember that we call it our new public square, but it's owned by private corporations who only want our eyes. They want our attention. And what gets our attention? Stuff that we have a strong emotional response to, especially what outrages us. And photographs do that better than anything else, whether we're talking about cell phone videos or still photographs, either one, you know, they really do get us going. Yeah, you're not, I mean, you're not wrong about that. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to even scroll through your Facebook and not see, and I, in fact, I'm a prolific Facebook poster and I almost never post without a picture because I know that's going to grab someone's attention maybe before they even read the text. They'll go, oh, that's an interesting picture. Now maybe I'll read what, what the guy has to say. And I've, I've done experiments with that to see which posts of mine get traction with visual, which ones don't. On the positive side, issues surrounding things like police brutality and say even Abu Ghraib would not have surfaced, in my opinion, if not for the presence of those cameras. Um, would, would, would there have been such a national outcry? Would we have, you know, almost forced some sort of prosecution and conviction of the people responsible had there not been this like super obvious, like this is, and even with the video, there was still all kinds of denial and there was still all, all the same tactics were utilized, right? I mean, they demonized George Floyd. They, they try to, you know, cast dispersions on his character and say, you know, whatever they did. And I'm telling you what, without the camera, those guys be walking the streets today. So I, I, I can see the positive, but I also understand what you're saying. There's, there is that sort of built in potential for negative use as well, right? That, Ability to instantly outrage. Go ahead, John. I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I was going to go off of what you said about um, like emotional responses to things that that we see. I can't remember who who told me about the study, but uh, there was a study done about people who obviously live an event and then people who watch an event. But what was shocking to find out was the people who are witnessing these events in on video or within photos. Their brain responses are as if they are like they're there, so they actually have, they actually respond as if so they I'm not going to say they have like the same kind of fear as someone who would be in these moments, but their brain reacts in a very similar way. So there's this like fight or flight response that they have in their brain, uh, and so because of that, and you know, we it was this word that was brought up to me within the last week or so is this idea of doom scrolling, right? So we have this idea where, I, I don't know, I, I, it's almost like a, a, I don't want to say an addiction, but you, you you almost need to see like all these things that give you these like really strong emotional responses, either from anger or joy, you know, and it feels like that's kind of where we are when it comes to like all this digital media. Uh, the other, the other thing I was going to bring up was, you know, as we move into this, right? So we have all these people with cameras and they can take pictures everywhere. But what I find shocking is how quickly people are still willing to say, yeah, but I don't believe it. And that's not, I mean, but it's not, it's not completely unwarranted, right? We've have media that's put in front of us that has been altered. I think you mentioned, is it Nancy Pelosi, where there's a, a video of her slurring her words, which wasn't true. So that's what opens up the idea or the ability for people to say that the videos we saw of January 6th, the insurrection, are altered. They're not true, even though I know that I personally watched a lot of that live. So I, you, I know what I saw. But, you know, as you move away from that, right, people are willing to say, I, I think it was altered. I think it wasn't real. And so could you, could you speak on that on, on, this idea that we see some of the stuff live streamed, right? 
but people are still willing to say, I don't believe it. And, and why is that? Yeah, well, there are two issues with that, I think. One, I mean, I talk about two different dimensions of our relationship to photography. One is photographic truth, and one is what I call photographic affect. So photographic truth is whether we can take for, take for granted or at least believe, you know, back to my title, seeing and believing, right? That's really where the title comes from in part. Um, can we believe what we see when we see a photograph? Well, that's been a question about photography since its inception, since analog photography. And photographs have always been able to be manipulated. But back in the day, you had to, that took certain skills and patience and all that stuff. Now, whereas now we can manipulate a photograph on our phones, right? It's a piece of cake to edit it a bit. It does take a bit more patience and skill to do anything really dramatic, but that's, that's pretty big. But here's the real thing about the big, biggest difference between analog photography and digital photography. Analog photography requires an object in front of it. There has to be something in the real world that somebody stands in front of and clicks the shutter. But that is not true of digital photography. You can create a digital photograph out of whole digital cloth, just out of the pixels that generate, that that actually convert the image that you see in real life to a real digital photograph, if you want to call it that. And that raises the question of whether we should even call digital photographs photographs at all. Because photography, that word means light writing. And light writing is not what's happening, right? And sometimes in, in terms of digital photographs, at least the ones that are really, that are created out of whole cloth. So we need to be concerned about things like deep fakes, right? We really do, because they're very much possible. And, but on the other hand, um, going back to, you know, your observation was right on target about people, even though they see something and they feel that outrage, right? They may interpret that outrage in very, very different ways, right? So these are not videos of anything that really happened. You're made up. So the other dimension, in addition to photographic truth, is photographic affect, which is how photographs move us emotionally and to take action. And the thing is, photographs don't all move us in the same direction or in the same ways. And that's been true of analog photography, too. Susan Sontag, whose name you may be familiar with, who's written a lot of really great stuff on photography that's really accessible, talks about a photograph of the Bosnian War and from the Bosnian War. And it's a child who's been a mother bending over a child who's been killed. Both sides in that conflict use that photograph successfully to gin up support for their side. So that's something we have to wrestle with too, right? And that is also a matter of believing. What do we believe we see? What do we believe we need to do then in relationship because of what we believe we see? And those can be very different things. So we were talking a bit ago about um, about the murder of George Floyd and how that you know generated so much activism and so on. And the main generator of that activism was the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Which started as a hashtag, right? Started on Twitter. And what actually got them started was the killing of Trayvon Martin, you might remember in Florida, vigilante killing by a guy who saw this young white, a young black man in a gray hoodie walking around in a white neighborhood and didn't think he, and assumed he was a criminal and went after him and shot him and killed him. Well, that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. Well, it also Seeing that story of Trayvon Martin and what happened and the result of it in the Black Lives Matter movement is what prompted Dylan Roof to get online and start Googling black-on-black crime. Well, we know how that turned out. He ends up doing this deep dive into um, social media posts that were pretending to be genuine media, but that were clearly white supremacist stuff. And that ended up motivating him to go to Mother Emanuel Church and murder, you know, nine black worshipers there. And that in turn motivated a guy in New Zealand to attack, basically to do the same thing in a couple of mosques in New Zealand and film it live on Facebook. So that's what I mean, we're, you know, what we're, what we're dealing with. On the one hand, the Black Lives Matter movement was the biggest social justice protest movement of all time, apparently. 
That's huge. It was global. It wasn't just in the U.S., but it was global. And so many people took that, you know, that famous selfie of Trayvon Martin that obviously his murder wasn't filmed, right? But that selfie of him in that gray hoodie that was taken, you know, who knows when, way before, became this iconic image for the protest movement. How many people took photographs of themselves, right? Dressed in a gray hoodie, looking into the camera just as deeply as Trayvon Martin did as a way of expressing their solidarity with the with him and with the movement. So yeah, I mean it's it's really complicated. On the one hand, these these photographs and visual media are really absolutely critical to movements for social justice. And without videos and without these things, we wouldn't have anything. But we've got Trayvon's selfie on the one hand, we've got Dylan Roofs on the other. He posted when he posted his um, manifesto he included a selfie of himself sitting in front of on a rock, in front of a fire, holding a gun and a Confederate flag, and staring into the camera just as intensely as Trayvon Martin did in his selfie, but for very different reasons. I mean, it's very much a you know, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I feel like um, if you go back to like the civil rights movement, right, where there was a, a, a very strong division within America and also very strong division within the church, right? I feel like where we are now with what's going on with the January 6th insurrection, what's going on and just the continual news about our former president and um, to the point where I think both sides are very confused on where we're going. Uh, one side wants to believe that he's not going to be found guilty of anything and he's going he's gonna to take his rightful spot back, back in the throne of the White House. And the other side is like, I don't know what's going on because it seems like we're taking too long to do this. But what I, what I don't see, which I saw in the Civil Rights Movement, not, obviously not, I wasn't alive then, but I, looking back, I can see it. I don't see a very strong church contingent standing up against him. There is a very minor amount, but, and is it because he has, he has just finagled his way into making most of the church, specifically the Western church, to believe that he is somehow still important to us, uh, through his media savvy, uh, which again, I find it very hard, I find it very hard to call it that because I, I, I can see through it. Do you do you see the same? Do, am, I, am I missing it? Am I just not seeing that group of the of the church that are standing out against what I consider a very strong manip- manipulation of the media? That, I guess that's my question. Yeah, that's a great question, and I guess I would say it's a bit more complicated. And again, media may be responsible for this. I think um, <laughs> you know so much of the media coverage is is about you know, how strong his base of support is in e- among white evangelical Christians, right? And and that's that seems to be true statistically, right? It's a much more complicated picture when you get out, even within that, I would say, even within that particular demographic of Christians. But it's a much more complicated picture when you get out of, um, out of that demographic to so-called mainline Protestants, let's say, and Catholics. There are plenty of Catholics who are also supportive. But again, it's just a much more complicated thing. But um, but the complication is, at least from what I'm hearing, there are these divisions are showing up. It's not just between evangelicals and mainline Protestants, let's say. But it is really inside the individual churches themselves, inside individual congregations where you have members of the congregation who are who might be Trump supporters or or might not be, and then you have people who are not. And those divisions are very difficult for pastors to negotiate and to navigate. There are plenty of congregations um, and plenty of Christians, I'm sticking with them because that's the denomination I know or the religion I know best, that are that are certainly very progressive on all the issues that are motivating evangelicals to side with Trump. So just to take Nashville as an example, if you drive down West End Boulevard toward Vanderbilt, you will see 
a number of churches that are clearly open and affirming, just given what they say publicly on their signs and stuff, right, of LGBTQ people. There are plenty of churches here in Nashville that have also put up, you know, Black Lives Matter signs and had had all kinds of reactions to that in some cases. So it's a much more complicated religious landscape within Christianity than it may than it may seem. And I think also the other piece of it is that the folks on the more progressive side do take very seriously the separation of church and state, you know, which, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, which on the evangelical side tends to be something that a boundary that's not always very well respected. So, yeah, I would say it's, it's just, it's, it's just complicated. And yeah, and, I, and there is a good bit of activism around those, those issues and a lot of progressive churches. And I mean, I'm thinking of like another example would be the, what we talked about, um, Gene Robinson a bit ago, getting ordained as a, or consecrated as a first openly gay bishop, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, um, which is the formal name of the Lutheran Church, um, back in, I think it was last spring, consecrated their first trans bishop. So there's, there's stuff going on, stuff going on. A large topic in, like inside the Methodist Church is the split that's happening right now, right? Where churches that's are just right. affiliating. Yeah. Um, and they're going, I have many, many Methodist friends. I have ties to the Methodist church, if not if tangentially at least. Um, and watching them go through that process um, has been heartbreaking. You know, I, I, I applaud everyone for standing their ground. And, but at the same time, I'm, I'm watching in real time the division it's causing inside of the, the local churches in, in my area, for example, my part of West Texas, it's just kind of right, right down the middle. And so... You're, you're right. It is complicated. Um, it, it saddens me that it has to be that complicated because I guess to my more simplistic way of thinking, I'm like, it's just not that complicated. We either love people or we don't love people, but um, it's gotten so right, wrapped up right. in politics yeah. and everyone's agendas that we have to kind of take stock of that. But when we start talking about things that that sort of spur people on to action, John brought up the civil rights movement, and it immediately made me think of those pictures from the mid sixties, you know, where people who lived outside the South, who maybe at one point could claim ignorance about what was going on in the South, were suddenly faced with the reality of, you know, peaceful protesters being, you know, having attack dogs sick on them and, or maybe the, the, in the integration days, uh, I can't remember the, the, the case of the, of the, of the young girl who was, had to be escorted to school, you know, by the National Guard, essentially. You know, all of a sudden you're face to face with the reality of, okay, it's not as picturesque as it's been portrayed. These are some, some gruesome realities that are, that are happening. I wonder today if how many people would question the authenticity of those pictures, you know, and would say, well, you know, maybe that's it. And I don't know that anybody questioned them back then, but yeah, yeah. But I'm like, I'm thinking about, you know, um, uh, there are, there are, there's this term for them. We call photographs like that iconic photographs. And they're, we call them that, and that, that's a religious term, right? We get that term from religion. There's a, this, this really great book I use by uh, two communication scholars called, it's about iconic photographs, and it's called No Caption Needed, because iconic photographs, they argue, right, capture these political conflicts in ways that, um, that don't require explanation, the power and pathos of a political conflict just comes across in a certain photograph in, in such a huge way and moves things, you know, moves people forward, right? Moves people in some direction. Another example of that would be, um, yeah, would be the photograph called Napalm Girl. You probably know what that is. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of when you said that. Yeah. I, that picture came into my mind. So, um, and then, you know, the earliest one I can think of is actually called Migrant Mother. That might be another one that you can think of. It's from the Depression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that picture. Oh, yeah. There's the picture of the, uh, the Tibetan monk who, who self-emoliated. Yes. That's another one. Yeah. In, in protest of the Vietnam War. That's iconic. I mean, that requires. Yeah. But what's interesting about those iconic pictures is, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a sort of defining characteristic of the 20th century is those kinds of pictures, especially in the Vietnam era, I think were critical in, in, in pushing people to be more vocally against the Vietnam War and say, no, 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 this, we didn't sign up for this. Like, this isn't what, what we're about. Had those images been as readily available in World War I, which was apparently 
from every account I've ever read, was one of the more atrocious wars we've ever fought. I wonder what kind of effect that might have had on the American population to say, whoa, whoa, I, this, this trench warfare stuff. You can even move back farther, though, because I think World War One. I, I found that reading history about World War One, there was a lot of photography available and there was a lot of stuff shown that shows the atrocity of that war. And so when we entered into World War Two, there was there was definitely a, a, the department within the military and within the government of propaganda. So they definitely covered up the atrocities to create a more patriotic version of what we were doing. Because after World War I, we, we did become a country very isolated and we were isolationists because we didn't want to go through another horrific war like that. People coming back extremely wounded, ex- you know, with, with the term of shell shock at the time. Now we, now we call it PTSD. So there was this very active change in the way we portrayed World War II to create this idea of patriotism that we are, that we're saving the world from the evils of whatever, you know, from, from the fascists, right? And then you move into Vietnam and, you know, obviously this is tail, dovetails with the, the kind of the hippie movement of saying, Hey, there has to be a different way. Yeah. But you also have to pay attention to the technological shifts too that happened over that period of time, right? The Civil War was actually the first war to be photographed. And, you know, and those photographs, I mean, it had to be daguerreotype. So they, that, those were not, you know, the, it's not the war photography that we think of now, right? And of course, by, by World War II, um, you know, it, you could you could carry a, a camera around, and you could you know shoot photographs, and so you know the possibility. But a lot of a lot of the photographs of the Civil War were certainly propaganda, to be sure. And so part of it is technology, and part of it, and that's where we are now with this kind of technology that is just so easy and so accessible and so manipulable, right? That's really tricky. But the other piece of it too is that the that we don't have the same kind of gatekeepers that we used to have. So, you know, thinking back to your question about what would, would there have been people who questioned whether or not the photograph taken on the bridge at Selma was really real or whether the photograph of Ruby Bridges, you know, or videos or whatever, you know, being escorted to school was really real. Those were all taken by and circulated by what we call now legacy media, right? And at the time, you know, we felt like we could trust them to tell us the truth. And they were telling us pretty much the same thing most of the time. And that's not, not true anymore. And I see that within our within the connection of, of digital media with kind of the loss of like a, like a, Walter, Cron, a Walter Cronkite, right? Someone who uh, we, we looked at as more as um, someone who just said the news as opposed to showing his opinion of the news. Uh, whereas, you know, news now has been split up into, are, are you, are you watching a more left leaning or more right leaning? Uh, are you, are you, you know, very few, uh, very few media outlets now I would consider are that just say the news without any, any kind of bias. I know there's websites you can go to that tell you which ones that supposedly have the least amount of bias, but even that is, it's hard to believe. Um, but I mean, it goes all the way to the point where we get back to like this idea of digital photography that we couldn't, we can't even agree. So there was a moment in time, a moment in history that happened, which was the inauguration of, I'm sorry, I, I, I still can't say his name, but the inauguration of president number 45. We have photographic evidence and we still can't agree with how many people were there. You have, <laughs> you have him saying, I mean, I mean, we can agree. Well, right, but we have one side saying <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of thousands, so many that they couldn't get in. To the other side saying, "No, you're 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 so far off the point that it's not even it's it's laughable." But there were people there, and they can't even agree on how many people were there. I mean, how do we, as consumers or prosumers of this type of information, how do we even get to a point where we can say, "I believe this, and I don't believe that." Is there a way? Well, I think there are a couple things to think about, uh, you know, around that. One is, and this is one of the things I'm really trying to do with this book, is to um, advance our literacy when it comes to um, this digital world, to give people a clearer sense of what really is happening uh, in social media on that public square, 
who's governing it, what they want, and what some of the weaknesses are, right? So, you know, we've heard stories, for example, about um, what uh, what I call in the book digital redlining. I get that from uh, from another scholar. But, um, you know, all the, the kind of, you know, algorithms of oppression is another really great book that I use. Um, and the author of that book, for example, uh, went online to was anticipating her her niece and her and her niece's best friend coming over and she thought well let me see what i can do that would be fun for them to do so she gets online and she googles young black girls and what comes up porn sites porn sites on google porn sites okay that's no longer true google fixed it but i'm just saying you know the fact that we have to be aware of these algorithms that they are they are they do carry inherent biases in them because we're biased. You know, they, they, it's really a reflection of us. So that's one thing. We need to pay attention to why we're seeing what we're seeing and approach it all with a, with a bit of skepticism. Some skepticism is a good thing, right? And then when it comes to digital photography in particular, you know, we do need to, that's another piece of it. I've got to pay attention. We've got to pay attention to the provenance of any particular photograph that we see understanding more deeply now how digital photography works and what it has in common with analog photography, but also what makes it different and what makes it more uh, dangerous is really important. So increasing our literacy about the digital world, increasing our literacy about digital photography is really crucial. But then I think the ultimate thing is going to be, I mean, we can't, we, we need more regulation. I'll just say that too. But the, then when it comes down to what I really am kind of working on with this book, too, is trying to give us some tools for how we can navigate what we see. I mentioned earlier that, you know, these the, the, the surveillance capitalists, which is what they are, right, want our attention. They just want our eyes on something, and then they want us to move to the next thing. And what gets our attention are things that outrage us. So, what do we do then when we run across something that just really grabs us emotionally, right? That photographic affect just really grabs us. What should we do? Well, yes, do your homework, figure out where you thought that photograph photograph came from and whether or not you can trust that source and therefore maybe trust what that photograph purports to show you. But then also think about, you know, first of all, slow down, right? slow down and look, really look into that photograph and think about what it is that's moving you in this particular way. I end the book with, um, or the last chapter of the book, I guess, really, is um, my attempt to offer my readers a visual repertoire, I call it, of gazes, of ways of seeing that can help us navigate that. Um, and what I talk, and the metaphor I use there, the language I use for it is really what I'm trying to do is kind of jumpstart what I call photographic insurrection. That is, these opportunities that come along, like when it comes to, um, you know, like the, like the videos of, uh, of black people being murdered, like Napalm Girl, like Terry Schiavo's situation, whatever. These opportunities that really do grab us, grab our attention, and give us an opportunity then to think about, okay, what is it about this that's grabbing my attention? I generally don't think about police as violent to black people any more than they are to white people. I don't think of myself as a racist. So what is it about this photograph that's grabbing me? Because on the one hand, I'm having this response to seeing a black guy being held down by police and one of them kneeling on his throat. And I'm appalled by the kneeling on his throat. But, you know, they captured this guy. Is this a policeman getting just carried away, doing something legit but getting carried away by it? Or is this something more problematic? So how can we wrestle with this? And the ways of seeing that I talk about are all ways of seeing found in, they're religious ways of seeing, actually, found in Christianity. Again, I shout out to um, 
to the scholar who helped, who actually provided this for me, really, the author of The Embedded Embodied Eyes. Really, it's a great book. And the ways of seeing that he distills out of Christianity are, that's where he finds them. But he also is very clear that they show up in other religious traditions too. And here's what's most important. They are ways of seeing that come naturally to us, quote unquote, you know, that we are probably using all the time. And yet we don't, you know, we don't think about them exactly this way. And the reason that I go to religious ways of seeing is because religions have been dealing with and struggling with this question of the relationship between seeing and believing forever, really since their inception. Think about Christianity itself. What launches Christianity is a crisis in seeing and believing. You know, rolling back uh, the stone in front of a tomb and seeing an empty tomb. Now, what do we make of that? What happened? How do we deal with that, right? And that launched a whole long thing, which, you know, we could go into some other time. But um, but just that example. If only there had been a camera. So, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, these, and I turn to religious ways of seeing for that reason. But the other thing is what they do, every one of these religious ways of seeing undoes the hierarchy of seer overseeing. Undoes the hierarchy of seer overseeing. Because these are ways that we're already seeing, and if you think about what happens when you are caught up by a photograph that really moves you, that hierarchy is disrupted, right? The power of the, the photograph has a hold on you that is stopping you in your tracks. So I'm offering these different ways of seeing to help us name and so give us language, I guess, and give us a perspective on how we see and how we can see. And I've conducted an experiment with these particular ways of seeing to see what they will do. Now, I conducted the experiment with some students in my class. So I'll grant you, they're, they're, they lean progressive, um, they're Christian, et cetera, et cetera. Well, for the most part, they're not all Christian. And by the end of my class, they were pretty literate in terms of, you know, because it was a class on theology and visual culture, um, pretty literate in these things that we've been talking about, these concepts we've been talking about. But when we started the class, here's what I asked them to do. I asked them, I showed them the selfies of Trayvon Martin and Dylan Roof. And I asked them to pick one or the other and to write down and to really look at it and to write down how they experienced it, what they felt, what they thought, all that stuff, and to hang on to that, to save it. And then at the end of the class, I asked them to bring what they had written back then to class with them and to share that with the class. And I asked them um, to determine now that they had been introduced to uh, to these to this visual repertoire. Whether any of the gazes that this scholar describes fit how they looked at the, that photograph to begin with, and to a person, they all could identify one or another gaze that really did fit how they how they looked at that photograph to begin with. Then I asked them to deliberately pick another gaze. And to use that gaze to look at the same photograph that they looked at the first time and to see and to write down what they thought, how they experienced that different way of looking and what that taught them. And again, every one of them saw differently, saw into that photograph differently, and most importantly, saw into themselves differently because they took that time and because they had that that language to use. And even though these were all people who were, by this time, you know, had read a lot of the scholarship that informs seeing and believing, they didn't reference one piece of it in what they wrote. They just talked about what they saw and how they felt and what it made them think and what it brought back to them in terms of memories or, you know, of their own formation and their own upbringing or where they are now or whatever. And it was really profound. So that gives me hope that, you know, that, that there are 
Yeah, yeah. That there are tools that we can use that are available to us that we're probably already using. And if we were more deliberate about it, you know, then we could really, um, you know, make a difference in the world. Um, so, you know, and I include in the book um, a list of, I describe the gazes, of course, and then I include in the book a list of prompts um, that my teaching assistant, Debbie Brubaker, shout out to Debbie, uh, put together to help launch their thinking, you know, based on these things. And, um, and you know, I think they can be, you know, I think they can really be very productive. I hope. That's my hope. Well, there's two things from what you were talking about that really stand out for me. And one is like the, the kind of the breaking down of the hierarchy. Uh, so for me, as I saw the video of George Floyd, and I don't want, I don't want this to sound like I don't, I, I'm dismissing the brutality because the brutality, the brutality of what was happening was horrific. But what really caught me off guard was the nonchalance attitude of the officers around I can't remember, is it Chauvin or Chauvin or whatever his name is, the, the, the one. But the, yeah, not a single mm-hmm. officer around him looked as if they were in peril. They all stood around as if this was just another day around the water cooler. So that was the shocking moment for me where I was like, something's off here. Because if they were really concerned about this person is, is going to attack the officers, which by this time there were many, then they would all be actively supporting what was happening to the but it was exact opposite it was to the point where they were almost bored because they didn't have anything to do right so that was for me the breaking down of the hierarchy of the the thin blue line for lack of a better description and that's that was the shocking moment for me it wasn't it, uh, sadly it wasn't the knee on the neck it was all the other officers who quite frankly didn't give a shit Right. And they're just, it feels like they're just in their minds almost like, when do we get to go on our coffee break? That's what it really felt like. So that's the one thing. And the second thing that I'd like to bring up to bring up with what you're talking about is I I feel like as we move forward, if we're going to take any kind of media seriously, they're going to have to start citing sources. I mean, I don't believe a book of a quote without having them cite the source so I can go back and read the quote, right? So why the hell should I ever believe that a photograph is real unless they're going to cite the source of the photograph so I can go look at the original the original photograph and see how they potentially have doctored it? Because we know they do that, right? They edit it, they cut it, they, they image, they change it so it, it better fits the story that they're trying to write. And I think we're at a point where if you're not willing to source the original material, then your your article, your photograph, or whatever is no is almost kind of void, in my opinion. And do you see any kind of like media sources starting to do that? Cite the source, the original source of the photograph, or or how would we even move into that direction? Well, you mentioned something earlier about regulation, and would that be a regu- would that be a regulatory thing? I would never be one who'd be accused of lamenting the loss of gatekeepers, but you brought that up as well. Where the photographs that you know tend to be these iconic ones came from legacy media that at the time were pretty well respected and trusted, and now it's just like anybody with a camera is a journalist, right? That's right, and I mean that that's one of the things that I think you know we can we can still rely on legacy media for certain things. You know, I think we can rely on them to do their due diligence when it comes to photographs that they reproduce, right? Um, yeah, they may cut them or crop them or whatever, but they're not going to make them out of whole cloth. You know, they're going to do their due diligence to make sure that it's, that it's real. And, uh, and so that's why, again, checking the source is really important. But it is why I think, um, you know, I, I, you, you cannot count on that on, you know, a lot of social media, you know, because you just, the, the way that, fake anything is policed or the way that content is policed on social media is really not nearly robust enough and understandably in part because you know good lord it's so there's so much that needs to happen you know there's so much of it and how can you but yeah i think that's one place where you know some regulation would be help would be helpful 
for sure. And then when it comes to AI, for sure, you know, I think, you know, we need, we need a regulation that says this was produced by AI, whatever it is, chat GPT, or this was produced by blah, 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 blah. You know, it might be that something could be done. You know, the one thing that, but again, these can be fake too, I'm sure. You know, digital photo- photographs do at least have a, you know, a time stamp and a location stamp. But, you know, it, yeah, but how how on earth are you going to, you know, make those de- make those determinations given what we know can be done with, um, with, with digital photography? The, the small amount of people kind of in my orbit who do this and take it seriously um, when they post photographs of something online, they always include all the metadata and say, "Hey, by the way, here here it is. You can check it. You can." It almost seems like us as consumers or prosumers or whatever term we want to use might have to make the same kinds of demands that we have done as consumers of other goods and says, "Show me the ingredient list. You're going to claim this is gluten free. You better show me what's in it and and demand that you know the FDA or somebody come along and and say, "Okay, yeah, this is this is healthy for you." It, that might sound absurd on its face, but on one, but um, but I, you know, I've been hoodwinked by fake pictures. You know, I've had, I've, you know, or by, you know, sometimes it's as simple as cropping out an image, like John can mention the inauguration and say, okay, fine. If you zoom in on this crowd, it looks like it's packed. And you zoom out and you go, oh, but there's all this empty space. So it might just be, I think, I think ultimately you're right. I think ultimately it's going to lie with the, with the consumer. To demand and to and not just to demand, but also to think critically of, about everything, you know, and, and find that balance of a healthy skepticism. Because I have seen this go the other direction. I've, John and I have interviewed people. We we, uh, we have a guy. We had a guy on recently who is a, has a YouTube channel where he debunks um, people who believe in flat Earth. So if you go down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theorists, you go. You take that 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 healthy skepticism and you. You know, you, you amp it up to 11, you put it on steroids, and now you don't believe anything. You know, if it doesn't fit your sort of predetermined narrative, then you go, well, the moon landing's fake. All those pictures look fake. Um, you know, and you start talking about it. So that, that balance is going to have to be struck between, okay, this, I don't automatically believe everything I see. Um, but I don't necessarily automatically disbelieve everything I see and then have to be, you know, proven. But. I think I think you're right. It comes down to changing the way we see things and doing the work, right? Of saying I want to be a responsible consumer of this material, and as social media users, I mean, before I repost, I'm, I'm very I'm very careful about this now. Before I repost something or before I share it on social media, I try my best to make sure that that's legit. Well, you're right. Like something as simple as like, I mean, how many times have you been told so and so celebrity passed away? Right. And so you repost it to find out that it's either they died five years ago or they haven't died at all. Yeah. And they're over there going, Hey, so, hello, not dead yet. Right. So that's, I mean, it's a very simple version of this, right? But it's a simple Google search, right? Because if, if you find it on a, like a legitimate news source, you know, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to date what time, what, when we made this video, but, uh, or made this, this episode, but. Pee Wee Herman just died. He died today or yesterday. I'm not sure exactly. Paul but, Rubens, John. But Paul Rubens. Paul, sorry. Well, I, he will always be Pee Wee Herman to me. But before I even comment or anything, I do I do a quick Google search, right? And find like a legitimate news source that says that he did indeed pass away before I'm going to comment on it. I mean, it, and it, again, it's a very simple version of what we're talking about, right? Uh, and I think... Both of you are correct in saying that this is going to have to be a consumer-driven policy. I, I don't. The government's too slow to act; they just are, you know. Or they're going to over overreact. And like Nat's saying, you know, when we ask for ingredients or like a good expiration date, so we know when something is potentially good to eat or not to eat. I think we need the same thing when it comes to media. We just we as consumers need to demand that they show. Their receipts. It's as simple as that, I think, right? Yeah, and but we need government to enforce it. That's the thing. I mean, we've got to, you know, because the only way that it works with the FDA is because we've got the FDA that actually, you know, gets out there and makes sure this stuff and all that. So, yeah, we can't do it without government. But, um, but yeah, we've. It, you're exactly right. I think you know this. It needs to be a multi-layered uh, response, and we need to be. You know, it sounds like at least Congress is taking the AI thing a little bit more seriously now than they were 
then I see that, I mean, again, I haven't Googled it, but I think I saw it in the New York Times that, um, that, and it was like, it's like Elizabeth Warren and some very right wing kind of Republican guy, I think, who've come up with some draft legislation. Is that right? I think, yeah. I, 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 and Elizabeth Warren's name, yes. I can't remember the name of the other person. John and I are, are, are fooling around with, uh, say, like ChatGPT right now, right? And uh, I'm astounded. I, 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 the one comment I made to my wife a little while ago is like, I'm so glad I don't teach anymore. I had a hard enough time catching kids plagiarizing in my class because they, I, I, let me take that back. They weren't very good at it. It was easy to catch, but it was still took time. You know, you'd go, it, it doesn't, you know, you know, you're, te- you know, you, you, you can read a, you can read someone's paper and go, this is not your work. You've never put these words together in your life. But now John sent me a few things. Like say we want to do like a, a summary of a, of a podcast episode. And John has just told chat GPT, write a summary of this hour long podcast and given it like a couple tiny details. And it spits out a thousand words of pretty darn good prose. And I'm like, John, you did, the, you, I didn't write that. That was, I'm like, how in the hell that's going to be tough? I mean, cause if I was a teenager right now and I was in high school, I was in an English lit class. I would say, Hey, chat GPT, write me a 10,000 word essay on the sun also rise and, and probably come up with something that's difficult to detect that you, that you just fabricated it. Yeah, it, it is, it is shocking. So like Nat and I are both finishing up our books and I, I gave chat GPT a one sentence summary of my book and asked it to write a paragraph summary off of that one sentence. And it was shockingly accurate. Like it was like, I mean, it was, it was like, like I mean, I was like better written than your book. <laughs> I can't. I'm but, I mean, but then, okay. So, but then on the other side of this, so, you know, we want to, I don't want to stay on the negative all the time. So the, the positive is, um, uh, and, and you didn't do this by the way. So you're, you're, you're not to blame for this, but <laughs> well, I'll get, when we have, when we have guests on, I'll ask for a bio. They'll send me a bio in first person. I'm like, I don't want to read a bio in first person. It doesn't sound right. So I put it into chat GBT and say, can you convert this to third person? It's like a 30 second fix. And it gives me the same bio, but now written in third person. And it makes way more sense when someone's reading something about you. So there, there are some positives to it, but yeah, there are, I mean, I think we, we've, we talked about this before we start recording, you know, the, the positives and the negatives of the AI world. This idea that they're working on contact lenses that when you put them in, it will convert any language into your reading language as you see it. So that, you know, as it, as you, you know, as you want to be a world traveler and you want to go to Europe or something like that, and you look, you, you get to see everything around you in, the, in a language that you can understand. But I can think of like 20 different things that would make that really, really scary and bad, you know, if I had that ability. So technology isn't evil or good. It's, it's what we do with it, right? And I think that's where, you know, what, like with what you're talking about with, you know, photographs and digital images specifically and social justice is like, this all could move us towards a more uh, unifying world, or it can just tear us apart. I tell you what, this is uh, this has been one of the more it's, it's fascinating. Um, your uh, this whole because it is so ubiquitous, right? That's and I think that's what I think that's what's yeah. going to be so useful about a book like yours is um, this speaks to something that every single one of us experience, every single one of us are trying to navigate, and people who are thoughtful are asking questions about it. This won't be a good book for the reactionaries. They won't listen. But for those of us who are thoughtful about it, this is good. And, and, and I think the tools that you provide are practical and helpful. I just, I applaud you. I thank you for, I thank you for writing. I think it's something we desperately need. So, and I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and being such an awesome guest and talking about this stuff. Sorry about the technology glitches, but that's the, every time we have a show, John, that has something to do with technology, it's like it knows. Yeah, I know. It's kind of scary. <laughs> Technology is personified and it understands we're talking about. <laughs> it's like, all right, oh, yeah. I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna oh, show you. But um, oh, don't get me started. Don't. Yeah. So if you've if you've stuck with us this long, I hope you. I sure hope you have. Make sure and go pick up the book, um, seeing and believing. Um, I'm sure it's available wherever wherever fine books are sold. I'm sure Jeff Bezos would appreciate your business as well. So you can go check out his little. I've heard of, there's a little <laughs> website, something about the Amazon. <laughs> yeah, it's a new startup. 
the new startup. Yeah, you might be able to get a book or yeah. two there. <laughs> and then I'm sure we'll li- I mean, obviously we'll link to it in our show notes. And, and hold it, it. Well, they can't see it, but yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's yeah. A cool cover. Yeah. I, and I, the cover is really cool. Yeah, I, nothing else. Go check yes, out the it cover. Is. It John's is. got it. It's yeah, right I, would, there. I would recommend. Yeah, I, we we were talking before. I'm like, hey, I've got that. I've got that on my coffee table at home. That's fantastic. Um, that's really going to be helpful. But yeah, um, but yeah, yeah thank you yeah. again yeah. for It'll coming. Coffee table, but yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm sharing it with folks, and we'll uh, like I said, we'll link to all your stuff in the notes and. Uh, drive people towards all your stuff and we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And it was a fun conversation, you know, about something hard, but it was really fun. Y'all are great. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.